Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Rains have failed for a third consecutive season in East Africa, leaving many millions of people facing malnutrition or starvation. In a moment, I'll be talking to Ruan McCormack about this unfolding humanitarian crisis which, scandalously, is being largely ignored by the countries that have the means to address it. Later, we'll be asking how far is the Spanish government in Madrid prepared to go to stop Catalonia from holding an independence referendum in the autumn? Guy Hedgeco will tell us why that question is exercising minds in Madrid and Barcelona. But first, Africa. Ruan McCormack, our foreign affairs specialist, is with me in studio. Ruan, the scale of the crisis developing across several countries in East Africa is staggering. Indeed, the UN has called this the largest humanitarian crisis since the end of the Second World War. Can you give us a snapshot first of how acute this problem is and how many people are affected? Well, Chris, as you say, it's been building for a number of years. This is the third consecutive season that that the rains have have failed. We're talking about uh, a belt that stretches from South Sudan through parts of uh, Kenya uh, and Ethiopia across to Somalia. And these are some of the most drought-prone parts of the world to begin with. Um, You know, the soil is very thin. uh, They're they're particularly vulnerable. Access is difficult in some parts of these countries, notably in in South Sudan and in Somalia. Um, And so what has happened is that you have a severe drought, um, as you have had for a number of years. But on top of that, you have exceptionally high food prices and you have the third ingredient, which is conflict. Uh, that particularly affects uh, South Sudan and Somalia. And that means that access is much more difficult for aid agencies. It means that people are displaced due to violence. Um, and it, it just generally means that it's more difficult to build up the information you need to know what the response has to be. So, for example, in Somalia, um, al-Shabaab, the, um, the, the violent group that's aligned to al-Qaeda, controls large parts of the worst affected regions of that country. Um, and so a lot of aid agencies have to make difficult calls as to whether they're going to deal with groups such as al-Shabaab. You've got a similar situation um, in South Sudan where uh, violence is you know, really endemic at the moment. The government, who is ostensibly the partner of aid agencies, is a major actor in, in, in that violence. And so that curtails your access. It curtails your ability to respond as quickly as you need to respond. And of course, on top of that, then, as you say, you've got the problem of insufficient funding being provided by the rich world. And which other countries are worst affected? You mentioned Somalia and South Sudan. Which other countries in East Africa are we talking about here? We're also talking about parts of Kenya and Ethiopia. Um, and both the parts of Kenya and Ethiopia that we're talking about have been affected by severe recurring drought for a number of years. So I was in Ethiopia last summer and we were looking at that time Mary Robinson, um, who was the UN's high representative for, uh, or rather representative uh, for uh, El Nino and climate change. She was looking specifically at that issue and she was looking at um, El Nino is a weather warming pattern that begins in the Pacific Ocean and it, it has a sort of a knock-on effect so it leads to more rains in some parts of the world and, and worse drought in others. And the latter effect was seen 
seen very clearly in Ethiopia. So Ethiopia has been dealing with this for quite a number of years, as have the other countries that have been affected. The upshot is that there are 24 million people who are facing starvation or malnutrition in that belt we're talking about across East Africa. Um, the numbers funding-wise are, are equally staggering. The UN at the beginning of this year um, made one of its biggest ever appeals for funding. It took those four countries we're talking about as well as Nigeria and Yemen, which are both uh, riven by violence and facing a food crisis, and said they need needed $6.1 uh, billion to deliver the humanitarian response to the food crises in those countries. What it had as of last month was $2.2 billion. That's 36% uh, in, in pledges. Um, I, I've since been looking at some figures, and apparently that's inching towards 40% a month later. But still, it's woefully inadequate. It's way below what's needed. So that's just forty percent of the, of the target or of the of the the commitment that was made. When was it early, earlier this year? Um, the, the the pledge was the sorry the appeal was made at the beginning of the this year. They have pledges uh, for close to forty percent. I, I understand it was thirty six percent last year last month, close to forty percent now. Um, so that's not necessarily money that has been received. It's it's pledges of funding. Now you'd imagine, given the the uh, nature of the crisis, its immediacy, that that money will flow quickly once the pledges are made. But that's not always a given in these situations either. And there's no shortage of information available to us about the scale of this crisis. And just for example, only last Friday, the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization um, produced a report. And just to take one example, it said almost half the population of Somalia is food insecure. And that picture is being replicated throughout the region, isn't it? It is. USAID, the United States uh, humanitarian aid arm, uh, said that in addition to uh, uh, Somalia, where we know half the population is in need of food aid, half of the population in South Sudan also is, is in the same situation. Um, and the problem is exacerbated, as I said, in these two countries because of access, because of the need to negotiate a very violent um, uh, environment for aid agencies and a very treacherous one uh, for them to, to navigate. Um, the problem with the rains having failed for the third consecutive season is that this has all sorts of knock-on effects. So cereal prices are now at near record levels in most markets across the region. That's according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. Um, and dry pastures on the general water shortage has meant that you've had a, a lot of livestock dying. That in turn has a knock-on effect, which is that milk is harder to come by. Uh, and, and that means that children are among the worst affected in this crisis, um, milk being critical for the healthy development of children under five. And, and in fact, the UN report I just mentioned on the question of children it points out that children under five who don't get access to adequate supplies of milk suffer irreversible and uh, permanent uh, health damage. That's right. Um, another figure I, I saw um, in recent days was, the, was that in Somalia alone, 1.4 million children face life-threatening severe malnutrition this year. I mean, the figures are just off the scale. Um, now, in a strange sense, Somalia of, the, of, of all of these countries, and I'm including for present purposes Nigeria and, and Yemen, where there are really acute crises, but Somalia is one of the countries where they're somewhat more optimistic about their chances of, of reaching people. And that's partly because Al-Shabaab is not as strong as it was. In 2011, that was the last time that a famine was declared in this, in this region. Now, we've had famine declared this year in two parts 
uh, of South Sudan. But the last time that you had a, a famine declared in a country in this region was Somalia in 2011. At that point, al-Shabaab was much stronger and it was much more difficult to gain access. Apparently, it's relatively stra- relatively easy compared to back then to gain access. And so that's one of the reasons why there's people are in the aid community are holding out a little bit of hope that they might be able to get to some of those who are worst affected uh, in, in Somalia. But clearly, it's, it is all relative. I mean, you're talking about a, a really difficult environment. A lot of aid agencies and foreign governments are constrained by domestic legislation that says you cannot deal with organizations such as al-Shabaab. Um, and in the real world, that, that's not always very easy. It's very difficult to get to um, those worst affected unless you deal with pretty unsavory uh, organizations in the field. And Ruan, we, we've covered some very big stories on this podcast in recent months, but none of them come close to this story really in terms of the scale of the tragedy that is developing here and the number of people affected. And yet this story receives relatively little global attention. Why do you think that is? And do you think we in the media are culpable and we should be addressing our own failures in, in maybe not pushing this story high enough up the news agenda? I think there. I, I think that's true. I mean, the neglect of the story is a fact. I think there are a number of factors. One is that a lot of the places that are worst affected are very difficult to access. So it's very difficult for the media to gain access uh, to Yemen and then, then to travel within the country and to see those who are worst affected. Similarly, if you look at Borno State in uh, northeastern Nigeria, we can go to certain cities, but it's very difficult to get out into the rural parts of Borno State where the situation is most acute. Um, and it's not only journalists that face this difficulty. Aid agencies and foreign governments have had a really difficult time in building up a picture of actually what's going on in places like Borno State. All of that said, I think to some extent it's it's a cop-out because the bottom line is that notwithstanding the fact that we can't access these places, we know a lot about the general picture. There are a lot of places that we can go to. There are a lot of places that where we know absolutely what's going on. Um, perhaps there's a sense that there is a certain fatigue about these stories. This is, as we said, the third consecutive year in which we've been talking about rains having fall, having failed in East Africa. Um, and perhaps there's a sense that it's difficult to engage people on this. But I noticed a, a line from a report from the uh, International Rescue Committee only in the last couple of days. They said, this is likely the least reported but most important major issue of our time. And it's very difficult to disagree with that. I mean, when you consider it, you know, a tweet from the U.S. president, notwithstanding the fact that tweets from the U.S. president are quite important and, and should be reported upon, but the, the amount of coverage that he can generate through one tweet versus the amount of coverage this story has generated, I think is a kind of a striking um, contrast there. It certainly is. I mean, it's com- completely disproportionate. And there's no question but that, that if, you, if you were to assemble a hierarchy of the most pressing and urgent stories um, in the world today, um, Donald Trump's tweets would be pretty low down the list and this would undoubtedly be at the top. So what needs to be done um, and, and how quickly does it need to be done? Well, the, 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 the problem is clear. The scale of the crisis is clear. We cannot say that we lack information, nor can we say that we lack the technical wherewithal to um, get to the places worst affected, to assess needs uh, and to respond. Aid agencies do have the capacity, they do have the resources, uh, the material, technical resources. So do the rich uh, aid donors in the West. What's needed, you know, is very simple. It's cash. It's it's money, and uh, until that pledge ratio can be increased, until they can get closer to reaching that target of six billion dollars, um, there really is no hope of mustering an adequate response to the crisis. So very plainly, it's a question of money, and that's a challenge not only for um, private individuals. It's I think a challenge also for private business. 
is a challenge for aid agencies and above all I think it's uh, a challenge for the wealthiest countries in the world. Are there some countries that have stepped up to the plate more than more than others? When we talk about um, the aid community, it's actually a relatively small number of countries. We're talking primarily about um, North America and Northern Europe. Um, there are other countries as well, but that's the bulk of the money comes from these two regions. Um, one of the concerns going into this was that President Trump's uh, pledge to drastically cut funding to the UN, to UN agencies, uh, this is US funding obviously, and funding to um, uh, USAID and to Development Aid generally, that that was going to really hinder the rich world's ability to respond, respond to crises like that. That's still very much a concern, um, but so far the evidence would suggest that it hasn't, um, it hasn't it's it's not been it's not been a factor in all of this. So we know, for example, that notwithstanding those pledges that Donald Trump has made, that Congress was able to insert uh, an extra nine hundred and ninety million dollars um, into this year's budget for uh, the food crisis in in East Africa. We also know that America, the United States, is by far the biggest funder of the uh, World Food Programme, far ahead of Canada, which is the second biggest donor. So for now, American money is still flowing in, um, but certainly the, the, the fear is that um, once Donald Trump presuming he does get to act on those commitments he's given, that that, that could really uh, tighten the, 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 the situation and make it all the worse. Okay, well, let's hope we soon see the international community given, giving this crisis the attention it deserves. Ruan, thank you. October 1st is the date set by the Catalan regional government for a referendum on independence from Spain. If the vote is yes, the Barcelona government says independence will be declared within 48 hours. The Madrid government, led by Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, insists that no such referendum will take place. And in recent weeks, the debate has turned to how far Rajoy's government is prepared to go to stop the Catalan independence movement from pursuing its goals. Might it even take an unprecedented step and use its powers under Article 155 of the Spanish Constitution? Our correspondent in Madrid, Guy Hedgeco, joins me from there. Guy, what is Article 155 and why is the question of its deployment or otherwise such an explosive topic right now? Well, Chris, Article 155 is a slightly enigmatic clause in the Constitution which has never been used before. And it's seen as kind of the nuclear option for Rajoy if he wants to stop the referendum going ahead because uh, although it's uh, rather vague, uh, its definition is rather vague in the Constitution, what it appears to uh, give the central government are the powers to uh, force any of Spain's 17 regional governments um, to carry out their duties, um, as the Constitution says. That is to do essentially what the central government uh, wants them to do if it feels that they're not um, doing what, not, not obeying orders or not carrying out their duties um, as laid out in the Constitution. So in this case, um, we're talking about the, the regional government of Catalonia uh, refusing um, court, order, court orders, refu refusing the central government's um, entreaties to not hold this referendum. And therefore, the central government, in this case, if it were to use this, uh, this clause, it would be trying to force the regional government somehow uh, not to do that. Now, when it comes down to specifics, what this could mean, for example, is that the central government might take control of certain powers that the regional government has. So uh, specifically regarding the referendum, which would probably be held 
the, the voting would probably take place in many schools across the Catalan region. So something the central government might want to do is take control of Catalonia's schools so they can stop that happening. So it'd be very much a sort of logistical step to stop that from happening. But, you know, should stress that this is very much a nuclear option. We don't know if it's going to be used or not yet, but um, essentially it's it's a last resort for Rajoy. So what you're suggesting, guys, is that as I understand it, the, the, the article, it gives the, the government fairly extensive powers, the Madrid government, that is. But you'd think if they were to use it, and that's very much in question at the moment, but if they were to use it, they might use it in a very specific uh, way just to stop the referendum by, as you say, taking over schools or whatever. It's the actual the actual powers that are conferred on the Madrid government by this article could be quite extensive, aren't they? Well, yes, that's right. I mean, one problem with this article is it's so general. You know, the wording of it is very vague. Um, it was sort of copied from the, the German constitution um, and it was introduced into Spain's 1978 constitution, which was the, the first one drawn up after the, the dictatorship, after Franco died in 75. Um, and, it, you know, it's never been used before. Um, and because it's vaguely worded, because it's never been used before, it is something of a mystery. And so, your constitutionalists have been arguing over this in recent weeks and recent months about ex- what exactly it does mean. Um, some people have been talking about it, meaning that the, the central government could simply step in and suspend uh, the, the Catalan regional government's powers um, altogether. Now, I, I don't think that would be the case. But, it, you know, it, it would make sense that if the central government was going to use it, it would use it in a, as restrained a way as possible, if that makes sense, even though many people feel that this is not a restrained uh, tool to use at all. But, for example, using it in the schools would be you know, a very obvious uh, way to implement it. But its use at all would be seen by certainly by some in the Catalan independence movement as a, as a declaration almost of war on the Catalan regional government, wouldn't it? It's, um, I know there's an, there's an argument really that there's no place for this kind of provision in the, in the Spanish constitution. Well, yes, that's right. And, and there is a sort of school of thoughts among the Catalan pro-independence camp that I, th- I think some people would almost welcome this, as, as perverse as that sounds, because it would be further proof, um, according to, to many uh, Catalan pro-independence Catalans that the central government is willing to overreact when it comes to the independence drive, that it will take, you know, any measures necessary. Um, you know, Catalan, the, the separatist camp, they love to compare the central government of Rajoy and the Spanish state overall with the, the Franco dictatorship of, you know, um, which lasted from the late 30s until the mid 70s. So declaring, declaring it a kind of anti-democratic a uh, regime which hasn't really come into the 21st century. And I think many Catalans, therefore, sort of see uh, the possibility that would even think of using Article 155 as proof of that. Um, now, you know, there are other Catalans who, who would just would rather <laughs> that, that Madrid didn't countenance using Article 155 because they just think it would be disastrous. It would be it would ratchet up the tension even further. But that is certainly a factor, the kind of public relations behind all this, how it looks. And I think that certainly would play a a part um, for Rajoy himself. I think he would be asking himself, how does this look in the international stage if I use this article, this very drastic tool to try and stop this referendum? It may not look great on the international stage. And has Rajoy himself or anybody in his government given any any indication to date um, as to whether they are prepared to use this clause or as to how advanced their thinking on it is? Well, I mean, it's being talked about a lot, um, both um, in the governing Partido Popular, the popular party of Rajoy, and in other, by other parties as well. Now, Rajoy, 
by nature, he's quite sort of circumspect and timid and he doesn't like to sort of face uh, or address issues um, straight on if he doesn't have to. So he hasn't talked about it a great deal. His justice minister, Rafael Catalá, a few months ago said quite clearly that, it, that Article 155 had not been ruled out. It was a possibility. Um, we heard the, the head of the Rajoy's popular party in Catalonia, um, Garcia Albiol, Xavier uh, Garcia Albiol, just a few days ago, um, seemed to suggest that it should be a possibility. And we've heard even, you know, former prime minister, um, socialist prime minister, I should add, uh, Felipe Gonzalez the other day seemed to suggest that it, it might be a good idea. It might be something the government should should, um, should consider. So it, it's kind of in the air. It seems to be discussed. Now, that's, that's certainly one thing it's, it's quite another for the government to be necessarily seriously thinking about using it it may just be that the government wants to keep it on the table kind of as a threat rather than thinking it will seriously use it but nonetheless it has been sort of the center of or very close to the center of the d- debate about catalonia in recent weeks and apart from this article 155 guy wh- what other means are open to the um, central government in Madrid to try to stop this referendum from happening if, if they do so. And I, and I suppose the flip side of that is if the Catalan regional government wants to have a referendum, is there is there a power on earth that can physically stop it from doing so? Well, this is the thing. I mean, now as this 1st of October date gets closer and closer and it looks increasingly likely that there will be some kind of referendum on, on October the 1st. Um, not necessarily the one that the, 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 Cat, the pro-independence um, camp want, but it looks like something is going to happen on that day. Um, we're getting very much down to the nitty gritty and, and the logistics of this. You know, what would what exactly would happen if they try and push ahead with this and the government is still insisting that it shouldn't happen? Um, now, at the moment, it looks like the central government is continuing with this sort of campaign of lawsuits, which it's been carrying out over the last few months. Now, if you cast your mind back to 2014, the, the Catalan government staged a referendum then on on independence. It was it did not treat it as a binding referendum like this one. It was seen as a sort of informal, non-binding referendum to take the temperature of feeling in Catalonia. That was deemed illegal by the, the central government. It didn't stop it from taking a, taking place. But what it then did do was it launched a load of lawsuits against the people who had been organizing it, including Artur Mas, who at the time was the Catalan regional premier. And just a few months ago, Artur Mas was barred from office. He was fined um, because of that case for having overseen um, that, um, that, that non-binding referendum, along with several members of his cabinet. So that's been the, the tactic of the government of Rajoy so far, he sort of used the courts to try and stop this. And I think we'll probably see a lot more of that um, in the coming months. But then you do get to some other issues such as, you know, what happens if, you know, a court is giving an order um, for this referendum not to take place or or it wants uh, a politician who's leading the referendum to be arrested? What do the police do? Now, Catalonia has its own police force, the, the Mossos de Squadra, and yesterday, the head of the Catalan police force, uh, a man called Albert Battle, he stepped down, citing political reasons. And um, he is seen as someone who's not in favor of independence, certainly not openly in, in favor of independence. And this was seen as part of a sort of uh, a major reshuffle in recent recent days at the top of the Catalan government to bring in people who are more stridently in favor of independence 
and remove people who have doubts about independence or, or who are not in favor of it. So now the, the, the new man in charge of the, the Catalan police, Pérez Soler, he's seen as being much more stridently pro-independence uh, and someone who is more likely to order the Catalan police to follow the orders of the regional government and not the central government. So you can see there, this is, you know, with an issue like that, this stalemate is just um, getting more and more entrenched on both sides. And so is the expectation, Guy, that we will likely have a, a referendum on October 1st, but the, the issue of its legal status might still not be resolved at that point? I mean, I think its legal status will almost certainly not be resolved. Um, there had been some speculation well, it has been over the last few months that perhaps the, the the regional government might kind of blink and step back and instead of holding the referendum, uh, call a regional election as a kind of way out of this. Now, we're getting so close to that October the 1st date that I think that's looking less and less likely. I think we're probably going to see something, some kind of major mobilization, some kind of major symbolic event on October the 1st. Um, and I think we've seen many of these in previous years, we, you know, from that 2014, um, that other referendum we saw, but we've seen many other marches through the streets of Barcelona and other towns. I think this time we'll probably see something similar, but possibly something that's bigger and has even stronger feeling behind it because there's been so much baggage leading up to this referendum, so much debate. It's, things have become so tense um, that I think... Um, Catalans who want independence or who want to, to vote, they're just not going to let uh, the central government stop them. So something is going to happen. And I think at the very least, there's going to be a big sort of uh, symbolic uh, demonstration on that day, which might involve voting. But I doubt very much that we'll see uh, Catalonia voting um, in something which is a formal referendum, which is uh, seen as legally binding and then breaking away from Spain within 48 hours, which is what they claim they would do. And um, if there is a, a, a vote, Guy, what's the, um, what do opinion polls um, tell us about the current level of support for independence among Catalans? Well, I mean, uh, support for independence has, uh, you know, has risen over the last four or five years as this whole sort of debate has, has heated up. Um, and Catalan society has been more or less split down the middle um, over the last, certainly over the last couple of years. The, I mean, the last... Um, last poll I saw was supporting, it slightly favoured independence um, over those who oppose independence. Um, and interestingly, there are other polls which have talked about how many people would take place in the October 1st referendum, even though it's illegal. Um, I mean, a poll in La Vanguardia newspaper, which is a Catalan newspaper the other day, suggested that something just over, uh, over 50% of Catalans would take place in the, in the referendum, even if it is illegal, um, and that just over half of those would vote in favour of independence. So, you know, it, it's all pretty much on a knife edge. Um, I think a lot will depend on the turnout on October the 1st, um, as well as obviously the result, um, because, you know, a lot of people who don't believe in this referendum or who don't believe in independence are going to stay away. Um, that's a problem that the pro-independence camp cannot avoid. So that automatically undermines the um, the, the turnout for the vote. Um, but it does look as look as though, according to these polls, over half of Catalans are probably going to turn out uh, on October the first if this vote does take place. 
Okay. And finally, Guy, in your assessment, how does the, the, the Catalan independence movement at a leadership level stand right now? It hasn't always presented a united front, I think. Isn't that fair to say? But is it, is it, is it a fairly united, um, there's an, a, a united organized, organized campaign now behind this referendum on, on October 1st? Well, the, the Catalan uh, political pro-independence front is incredibly broad. It goes from um, from the far left um, to the sort of centre right. Um, and when you take in the parties that are involved in this drive towards independence, the parties that are in the the Catalan Parliament, so it's always been this kind of quite unwieldy, weird sort of coalition, or not not necessarily formal coalition, but a sort of broad front. Um, so inevitably, that. Um, leads to problems and um, and schisms and divisions. And we have seen a lot of those. We've seen a lot of those in recent weeks. And, and, and those divisions have been part of the reason why we saw that kind of reshuffle. Some will call it reshuffle. Some will call it a purge at the top of the Catalan government the other day. Um, that, that many people believe that those were due to pressures from the more radical elements on the left um, of the Catalan pro-independence uh, movement. So they do have their problems in that sense. But having said that, the, the Catalan government itself um, seems to be more united today uh, than it was, say, a week ago when it comes to the issue of independence. It's more stridently in favor of independence. Um, it seems to have got rid of people who are doubtful about it, who are unsure of it. Um, and so all the all the members of the Catalan uh, regional cabinet seem to be uh, pretty much on board. So in that sense, it's quite united. But of course, there are always you know uh, dissenters or people who are unhappy with the way things are going or the speed that they're going in and around the independence movement. Okay, well, guy, you'll be keeping us um, up to speed with this story, no doubt, over the, the coming weeks and months. Thanks a lot for that. Thanks a lot, Chris. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.